welcome to the Synapse UCSF Student Voices podcast. I'm Victoria Turner, Synapse's Editor-in-Chief and graduate student in the UCSF Neuroscience Program. In this podcast, UCSF students and trainees chat with people who are making waves in science, journalism, literature, and more. Hello, and welcome to this year's Science Speaker Series. Uh, thank you for joining our coffee chat with Nicholas Ainsler. My name is Victoria Turner, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of Synapse, UCSF's student newspaper. I'm a sixth-year PhD student studying the neuroscience of stress. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Synapse is the UCSF student news outlet. This is our 66th year in publication. Our goal is to provide a platform for anything trainees want to write about. We also offer guidance on how to improve your writing and how to develop journalistic style. Last year, we launched a podcast, and so we've started teaching around audio journalism as well. If you'd like to learn more, please come to one of our editorial meetings. These are every two weeks on Wednesdays at noon, so this time slot. If you write your name and email in our chat, we can follow up and send you the Zoom invitation. I'd also like to announce that we are holding our fifth annual storytelling contest uh, in three weeks. Just to give you a heads up, we're giving away a dozen prizes totaling $2,000. We also have some new categories this year, so stay tuned for that. Finally, I would like to thank our sponsor, the UCSF Office of Student Life, especially Jennifer Roscoe, Director of Student Involvement. Thank you for your support. Now for our main event. Today, we welcome Nicholas St. Fleur to speak about his journey into science writing and science communication. We will follow up with a Q&A. Keep things moving smoothly. If you have a question, please write it in the chat and we'll go through them after the talk. If you'd like to share your question on video, please use the raise hand function instead and we can call on you. Uh, to ask your question during the Q&A. Just to remind you all, we will be recording this session and plan to release a version later. So without further ado, I am proud to introduce our speaker today. Nicholas St. Fleur is an award-winning science journalist based in New York. He is currently a general assignment reporter and associate editorial director of events at Stat News. Previously, he was the University of Michigan Knight Wallace reporting fellow covering the intersection of race, medicine, and the life sciences for Stat. His stories have appeared in the New York Times and the Atlantic, and he previously completed internships at Scientific American, Science Magazine, NPR, and the San Jose Mercury News. He holds a bachelor's in biology from Cornell University and a master's in science communication from UC Santa Cruz. Aside from the numerous articles he has reported and written, he also published a children's book on dinosaurs in 2020. And uh, as he mentioned in 2021, he documented his own colonoscopy experience to raise awareness around public health and screening. I had to mention that because that's amazing. Nope, of course. That... I mean, the more, the more warning we give them beforehand, the better. <laughs> <laughs> it's UCSF. I'm sure, I'm sure they're all comfortable with it. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to you, Nicholas. Oh. Thank you for being here today. Victoria, thank you. Thank you for the invite and thank you for that introduction. I really appreciate that. Um, and you said you said he's stressed, right? So any, yes. any tips for managing stressful situations, like speaking to a crowd of really smart people? <laughs> uh, making jokes is always a good way. Okay, I can I could totally make some jokes. I'm a, I'm a, I like to consider myself like like an expert dad joke maker, like in the making. I'm not a dad yet, but I, I've been studying up on the jokes. So don't mind me if I'm a little corny throughout all of this. <laughs> but I'm so happy you all are, you know, you came to listen to me speak. Um, so yeah, as Victoria mentioned, I have like a bit of a PowerPoint here that kind of goes through 
some of the stories I've done as a science journalist. Um, and then I have like a little break for like some quick questions. And then I go how we'll go back to my presentation about some of my coverage now at STAT. Um, so I'm going to share my screen right now. And, you know, I know we have Q&A set aside at the end, but if there's something that comes up and you're just like, you know, Nick, I want to chat with you right now about this, you can totally do that. So let me know if my sharing of screens is working. Do you guys see something that says science journalism? Yep. Um, it's an eclipse. Is it all, it's all in presentation mode? It's looking good? Yep. Okay, looking good. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Awesome. Well, this is a little bit about me. This is a bit of my bio as Victoria expressed, um, which I actually have to update. I'm actually no longer a freelance science reporter, my bad, but <laughs> I'm currently working at STAT. Um, but one thing I like to do with these presentations is, so currently I cover a lot of like COVID stuff. I cover a lot of um, health inequities and such, and that can be pretty depressing. So what I like to do when I talk a bit about my journey as a science journalist is start with some of like the cool stuff I've gotten to cover throughout my career here. Um, I've written a lot about, as you can see here, bones, lots and lots of bones. Um, I used to work at the New York Times, and we'll get into that in a bit. I've done a lot of writing for kids here, which is so rewarding and so worthwhile. Um, they provide some of the nicest comments um, of the people who I write for. Adults tend to be a little nasty or snarky, but kids, kids are always like, wow, that's so cool. That's really great. So feel free to ask me questions about writing for kids and why I think everyone who wants to write about science should take the time or the opportunity to write for younger audiences. Um, I've written a number of stories for the New York Times' uh, kids magazine here about sharks, about uh, stargazing, uh, the human body, and, and, and Mars. Um, as Victoria mentioned, I wrote a kid's book as well on, on dinosaurs, and I'm, I'm hopefully hoping to do some more in the future. Um, but let's get into some of the science journalism for adults I've done. So when I was at the Times, I was there for about three years and my editor would lovingly call me his dead world correspondent. Now I didn't get that on any of my uh, business cards. I totally should have pushed for it. But the idea here is that I cover uh, the dead world. I used to cover archeology, span uh, paleontology and actually a bit of space. So, you know, things that were like dead, like super, super dead. And then things that are like, you know, we have no idea when it comes to space, right? Could be alive, could be dead, could be super dead. We don't know. So I like to call myself dead world correspondent. Um, I've written about graveyards. In this particular case, this is an ancient Philistine graveyard. Um, if you look closely at the, um, the, the, the skeleton there, you'll notice a little bit of a jug on this person's face. The idea there was that archaeologists are wondering whether the jug was put there to kind of give the, the, the deceased something nice and sweet to smell in the afterlife, or did like this whole place just smell really bad and they needed to find a better way to make, you know, the, 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 the grave area, you know, smell better. Um, so I'm kind of just throughout this presentation going to give you like snippets of some of the stories I've covered. If you have like questions about anything, you know, put them in the chat or feel free to like ask during the Q&A. Um, I've written about underwater archeology span and this particular case, this is the, the ruins and the Antikythera shipwreck. This is like a Roman, a Roman era shipwreck back in, um, that's around Greece. Um, but what's interesting about this particular case is that, uh, you know, they had all these 
really cool bronze statues that these archaeologists, you know, they drove to the bottom of the, 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 the sea there to kind of look at. This was like the Baltic Sea, I want to say. Um, super cool stuff. Uh, a funny, a funny, a funny, um, a funny aside is when this story actually appeared in print, it appeared right next to um, a colleague of mine who covers like global health and his story was about like lepers and such. So we had this image of like this hand that you really can't tell. And if you looked at it just off the, you know, the screen, uh, just on the, on the, the page and you didn't read what it was about, you might've thought it was a photo that went with his story, but that is bronze over there. And that is just like an old statue um, moving along. This was a really fascinating story I got to write about a gentleman named uh, Kakucha. So Kukucha was a, um, a, an aboriginary individual who died, you know, centuries ago. Uh, his body was found by the water uh, by this gentleman named Badger. And he's also an, um, an aboriginary individual. And he was telling me, like, you know, he came across the skeleton and he only saw part of it jutting out from the, the, the ground. And, you know, he just knew instantly this was a family member. Like, this was a brother to him. This was someone who, who, who probably shared the same blood with him. And he, he, he said he was looking at the skeleton and he was saying, don't worry, my brother, don't worry, I will help you. I will find a way to help you. Um, so he helped team up with some archeologists and they, they dug up the body and you know they were able to do some archeology, span do some studying, do some radio dating and such. And at first what they had noticed about this individual is that they had these gashes on, on their face. Um, they thought this person was probably the victim of frontier violence when Europeans came to Australia and wiped out a lot of the um, indigenous population there. Um, but upon doing further dating, they realized that this individual um, predated the arrival of Europeans in, in, in Australia. And what made that so interesting was they were curious, how did this person die? Like, how did someone sustain injuries like this if it was not from steel weaponry? And they came up with the hypothesis that Kakuja might just be the world's earliest known boomerang victim. Um, in this particular case, the, 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 the people would use boomerangs, kind of like these sharpened pieces of wood, not necessarily the ones that you throw and then, you know, come back. These ones would be used kind of as like an ax or like a hammer to hit folks with. Um, so that was a pretty interesting discovery to write about. But I think what was most touching for me is that Badger insisted that they rebury this individual, which doesn't happen often, I would say, in archaeology and a lot of the stories I've, I've covered. Um, but he was insistent: if you're going to study this individual, we then rebury them. And they put he had a whole ceremony, a traditional ceremony, to rebury Kakuja, which, you know, I thought was just so so touching. Um, but as a Dead World correspondent, you cover a lot of gruesome stories. Uh, I don't know if anyone here are a fan of Game of Thrones or in the year 2022, if you can still call yourself a fan after the way the series ended. I mean, I still do, but I know, you know, mixed opinions. Um, but this story I got to write sounded like it was straight out of Game of Thrones. So this was a sneak attack on a Swedish fort known as the Sandby Borg uh, Ring Fort. It was located on an island called Oland, Oland Island uh, in the B Baltic Sea. And what was so interesting about this is that this was a fort in the area, right? Um, but when the scientists were kind of like digging up, they found numerous, numerous dead bodies um, from this attack. But what was so interesting about the dead bodies is that, you know, they were found 
in such a way that it looked like they were taken by surprise. Some of these people died in the middle of their doorways. Some of them died, um, you know, just as if they were in an attack. Not and and most of them had like defensive wounds, if that. Um, and then from what I remember from this, uh, because it was such a heavily um, put together fort. The, 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 the scientists kind of concluded that they think it was an inside job. They think that a neighboring town or something may have teamed up with someone who lowered the defenses or allowed you know, the invaders to sneak in and, and, and basically slaughter all these people. Um, on that gruesome note, um, you know, of the, I think, 20 or so bodies they probably have found, I, I think there's like more than 100 that they think are there, but of like the 20 or so bodies, so far they've only found men. Who, who were killed there. They don't know what happened to the women in this area. Um, and when I talk about like some of these bodies, there was one case from what I remember, um, they think this guy was either the leader or like a shaman or something, but he was, not only was he killed, uh, but they put his body in a fire, right? So his body, like the bones were charred and they put like, I think it was like a goat's tongue or goat something in his mouth. You'll have to forgive me. I haven't read the story in a, in a moment, but they, they 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 wanted to make sure this guy was like was humiliated in death, and I just thought that was so. There was animosity here. So as a as a dead world correspondent, you get to you know write a bit about just human conflict across the across centuries across eons, and it's just so it's interesting, but it's also just like wow, it's a it's 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 wild to to think about or to, to watch. Um, and then to also compare it to the conflicts we have going on today and realizing that how violent we are as, 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 as a species, how violent we are as, as, as you know, people on this planet. Um, sometimes I write mystery stories, which are really fun as well. I wrote this story back in 2018, I wanna say, called The FBI in the Mystery of the Mummy's Head. So about a hundred years ago, there was this tomb in Egypt that these um, Harvard archaeologists uncovered. They basically went inside and, you know, maybe they were expecting riches, maybe they were expecting something extravagant, but instead what they saw were wooden statues, if you will, just thrown all over the place, all over the place. It was basically ransacked in antiquity at some point. A lot of the stuff was burnt as well. And what they found when they went up to the coffin was this head just sitting there on the coffin, just like, um, and, you know, body thrown to the side and such. Um, they had no idea who exactly it was. They knew the tomb belonged to a governor named Jehudinacht, which I don't know if I have the spelling there, but it's, it's some pretty wild spelling, Jehudinacht. Um, but they weren't sure if this individual was Jehudinacht, the governor, or perhaps his wife, Lady Jehudinacht. Um, they couldn't tell because... Um, you know, all they had at that time was 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 the head. And then uh, the the idea is that, you know, the robbers or grave robbers came in, there were probably some jewels around the neck. So they ripped off the head, took the jewels and, you know, sked, skedaddled and then lit the place on fire. Um, so they brought this back to, I mean, they brought this to the U.S. and it's been in the Boston Museum of uh, Fine Arts, I want to say, MFA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for like over a century, right? And even the um, even the curators weren't sure if this was a man or a woman. Um, so it wasn't until like several years back, I want to say, um, they enlisted the help of the FBI to actually figure out the identity of this 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 mummy head. So this was like one of the FBI's like oldest like cold cases. Um, 
so first what they needed to do was extract DNA from the mummy head. Luckily, you know, it was just a head. <laughs> um, so they were able to extract it from a molar, one of the teeth in the back. But, you know, you can only imagine this thing was about like, I think it was like 3000 years old or so. Um, you know, it's super delicate, right? You can't just say like, open up, like, wah, like mommy's not going to do that, right? <laughs> um, but what they were able to do was sneak through the neck and they had these like, you know, dentists come together and extract the tooth from the back. And they use that tooth, they cut it in half, they sent one to like, certain labs and then they sent another part of it to like the FBI and the FBI was able to determine um you know that the tooth belonged to a male that it was actually in fact um Jehudi Nak, the governor himself who was buried in his tomb kind of thing it, it there were a lot of questions about whether or not who it was because part of the um clues that may have helped them figure out if it was a woman or a man like looking at some of the bones and facial structures from the experts I was speaking to those were missing uh, because of the mummification process. There's this thing called the opening of the um, opening of the mind or opening of the mouth. I'm uh, forgive me, I'm forgetting. But basically, uh, you know, to remove certain parts of the the, the, the face. The, so th those structures were gone. So those clues weren't there. So they needed to do this DNA kind of testing to figure it out. So I just thought that was super cool. I got to speak with you know dentists who normally work on you know alive people <laughs> working on someone who's 3000 years old. Um, so mummy is one of my soft spots, an area that I love to cover, but another area that I'm super passionate about, dinosaurs, okay? Um, this particular dinosaur I wrote about uh, was known as like a kind of tiny tyrannosaur. What I love about covering dinosaurs is that it gives you a moment to kind of step back and really think about our place on this planet. Dinosaurs were like, you know, the dominant force for what, like 160 million years or so, right? That's a long time, right? They, they, just thinking about how they ruled, how they reigned supreme over these same lands that we now, um, 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 you know, that we now, you know, live our lives on is just crazy to me. In this particular case, we were talking about how tyrannosaurs started off small because they were a top dog. There were another dinosaur species, uh, allosaurs at this time, which are similar to tyrannosaurs, except their arms weren't as quite as puny. They were a little more developed, you know, they could flex them a bit. Um, so they ran stuff for a while, um, but the tyrannosaurs then, you know, eventually inherited the earth, if you will, and they became big. And then we ended up with like Tyrannosaurus rex, you know, the, the, the king of dinosaurs. So that's what this story was looking at. Um, but one way I like to put in perspective is that like you and I right now, you know, we're chatting on this Zoom. You know, some of you might be like texting friends on the side or on Slack or something like this technology that we have right now in this moment right here, we are closer in time to T-Rex than T-Rex was to Stegosaurus. Now, isn't that just mind blowing? Especially when you think about Stegosaurus, the one that had like the plates all around its back. Any like dino obsessed kid will tell you, well, probably have a Stegosaurus and a T-Rex together. Most play sets sell them together, but they did not inhabit this earth at the same time. So I just think like when I think about the longevity of the dinosaurs, I mean, obviously some of them are still around. You might have them as pets. You might've had them as dinner last night in the form of birds, chickens, you know, but it's just wild to me. Um, I once wrote a story about something called Thanatus der Grudem, I wanna say his name is, but um, this is known as the Reaper of Death. What I like about this particular story is that this was discovered by 
a citizen scientist, just some person walking on his way, um, walking near some some water, I want to say, and he's just walking and he's just like looking on the ground. He's like, hey, that looks like a dinosaur like mouth, like a jar. And he picks it up. He's like, I think this is a dinosaur jar. It took a couple of years, but eventually he was able to get it into the hand of some paleontologists who were able to confirm that it was a new species. Um, so this is a pretty fun one. Uh, I write a lot about fossilized amber, or I used to at least. Um, you know, there are a lot of ethical issues when it comes to writing about amber because of the uh, the amber trade um, um, and a lot of issues happening um, in, in that you know that particular part of the the world, uh, Myanmar. But what's cool about this is that you know you have these little like time capsules to creatures that lived millions and millions and millions of years ago. Over here, you see what was believed to be a dinosaur tail, a literal feathered dinosaur tail. Um, you have over here, this kind of thing that looks like a spider, but it's also kind of like a scorpion. I said that it kind of like haunted the, the nightmares of dinosaurs, um, but this thing was actually super small, so it probably didn't. Um, the other one is like a bird, like talon from back then. So dinosaurs, super cool, super passionate about, but space. Space is wild, man, and women. <laughs> Space is wild. Okay, one of the when I was at the Times, uh, my beat. I, I like to say that we had two, you know, top-notch, top-dog space reporters. One being uh, Dennis Overby, the other being Ken Chang. And Dennis would write about. I mean, Ken would write about basically anything within the solar system. Dennis would write about anything outside of the solar system. And I got like the, 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 space, the space dust or the crumbs that fell in beneath. And luckily one story I got to be one of our like lead reporters on was the 2017 total solar eclipse. Now I'm looking in the crowd here, was anyone in the line of totality for the 2017 total solar eclipse? Or did anyone hear? Yeah, I see Iris shaking her head saying yes. Yes, I see Victoria yes. raising her hand. Yes. We drove okay. like 16 hours. <laughs> Oh yeah, you got to see it. How cool was that? Amazing. That's awesome. So I, I mean, I got to cover it as a reporter and this was something I loved. So over here, you see, this was like the line of totality. It's stretched all the way from, you know, Salem, all the way in like, like Portland, all of that area, all the way down to Charleston. Um, and basically this was like the line of totality. And I got to write about the... Basically, I got to, you know, cover that this was happening, but I also wrote a story about eclipse chasers. Now, eclipse chasers, this is actually, this is what I want to be when I grow up, honestly. I mean, I'm like an adult now, so I could, I could do that now, but basically, these are people who, they get an adrenaline rush by being in the shadow of the moon, all right? They travel across the country, not across the country, across the whole world, right, looking for totality, looking for this point where the moon blots out the sun during a total solar eclipse. And, you know, I spoke with folks who have traveled to remote islands in the Pacific. I've spoken to folks who have gone to like Gabon, who have gone across like deserts, who have gone to the Arctic. Um, here's some of them. This is uh, Kate Russo, I wanna say. This was uh, Hakeem Alusi, who is an astrophysicist uh, or a, sol a solar physicist, my mistake. And the cool thing about studying the eclipse is that you get to witness something called the corona. So if you don't mind, like the corona is like this, 
it's this wispy, almost invisible portion of the sun that's that's always there, but it's blotted out by the much brighter solar disk itself. So if you look up to the sun, don't look up to the sun. But if you were to, you wouldn't see the corona on a normal day. You only ever get the chance to see it during a total solar eclipse. So I gave a presentation like this once um, to kids, and I was saying how the corona is basically like this like halo in the sky. So when the moon blocks out the sun, you basically just see this, this, this halo, if you will, which I started off my presentation to. And they had asked me, you know, what is a halo? I think you all being graduate students probably have a better idea of what that is. But if not, I have this little thing right here. It's basically like seeing this in the sky. <laughs> so the reason why the corona is so interesting to scientists is because it burns so, so, so hot, even though it's further away from like the sun itself. You might be wondering to yourself, what, what do you mean by that, Nick? So a great analogy I got is that Imagine you're at a campfire with your friends, you know, you're toasting marshmallows, you're having a good time up against the fire and it's nice and warm and hot. And then you start backing away from the campfire and the further and further back you go, the hotter it gets. Like that would be mind blowing. You would imagine the further away you are, the colder it is, right? Not the sense with the, the, the corona. So scientists use the eclipse as an opportunity to better understand, to better study the sun's like solar mysteries, if you will. Um, so yeah, I mean, just talking to folks who like are obsessed with this stuff. Hakeem's awesome because he's both an eclipse chaser and a solar physicist. So super cool. I spoke with these scientists who were chasing the um, totality in a plane. Most of the people who got, um, who watched totality at, on the ground, I was in a place called Carbondale. We got it for like a marvelous two minutes and 38 seconds. Um, these scientists were able to extend that to about four minutes, maybe, or eight minutes. Um, I want to say by chasing the, the line of totality, by chasing the moon's shadow, you know, in a plane. So that was pretty cool. I got to speak with them about that. Um, as I had alluded to, I was in Carbondale, Illinois. So Carbondale, Illinois, I don't know if we have anyone from Illinois here. Um, Carbondale, Illinois, it's this college town, right? Small place, um, probably has about like a population of like, I don't know, 20,000 or so people. I might be off with the numbers, but most of them are college students, right? But they were getting prepared to be flooded by like an estimated 50,000 people coming in all to see this eclipse because they were in this point on this map, on that line I showed you earlier, known as greatest, a uh, point of greatest duration. So if you're like a real eclipse enthusiast, you wanted to be in Carbondale because at that point you get to bathe in, in, in totality for longer than anyone else. That, that, that marvelous two minutes and 38 seconds I was talking about. Um, so I got to speak with a lot of people in this quirky town about what that was like, about preparing for it. You know, this is like, this is literally like a, a, a so they, they, they had a viewing, as you can see on the actual stadium here. And I was lucky enough to be able to attend. Um, they packed up the stadium with like, I think it was like about like 14,000 people showed up. Um, and this was literally a celestial Super Bowl, if you will, right? But no one, no one's looking at the, you know, the end zone or anything. Everyone's looking up at the sky. Um, and this is a big deal for a small school like this that didn't even actually have an astronomy program. <laughs> and yet here they are in like one of like the biggest like astronomical events of the year of really the century, like for the US. Um, 
yeah, so I was there, I got to cover it. And I remember looking up at the sky, getting ready for, you know, the eclipse to happen. I was actually talking to a, to, to a scientist and she was like, you know, everything looks good. Looks like we'll be all good. As long as that doesn't happen, the sky got, got prematurely dark and we all looked up and there was this big cotton candy cloud right there, right in front of the sun. And I was like, uh, and I looked behind it. It was cotton candy cloud, cotton candy cloud, cotton candy cloud. It was a cue of these big fluffy monstrosities, if you will. And basically we're looking up and we're just hoping that this doesn't happen because this is like an hour before totality is about to, you know, about to happen, about to come. Um, and then, you know, like I said, we had two minutes, 38 seconds. So we're, we're, we're really, really kind of hoping that we get like, um, you know, we get something of it, but right as the time's about to come, they have like this announcer, he's speaking, okay, totality in like five, four, three, two, one. And we see just for a moment, a quick glimpse of, of the, you know, of the eclipse of this, this, this halo in the sky. And then it gets swallowed up by the cloud again. And we're all just like, ah, like everyone's all frustrated. They're on the edges of their seat there. And everyone's looking to the cloud. And like I told you, they have an announcer, right? So the announcer, he gets his microphone. And he's just like, all right, everyone get on your feet. We're going to move that cloud. I'm telling you, stop your feet, yell to the heavens, move cloud, move cloud. You would have thought we were literally like, like it was tied up. We were all waiting on a Hail Mary pass to see who was going to win this, this, this celestial football game, as I'm putting it, this celestial Super Bowl. And then for a quick, brief moment, we get like little portal and we see it. It is gorgeous. But then it gets swallowed up again. And we're all even more, you know, we got a taste about it. We got like a little bit about it. We're like, oh gosh, we all wanted that. We wanted to see this eclipse. So everyone's standing up. Everyone's going, rah, 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 rah. move, cloud, move, cloud. And then we're counting down. Like I said, we had two minutes and 38 seconds. We're at two minutes, 35, two minutes, 36, two minutes, 37, right, right then, boom, the cloud moves and we see it. Everyone is gazing at what I would say was the most beautiful natural phenomenon you could ever get the privilege to see as a human being on this planet. I know that sounds like hyperbole, that sounds like a lot, but if you haven't seen it, then you like, you got to see it yourself. It is so beautiful. So that was one of the coolest stories I got to write about for, for the times. Um, in this case, this was um, um, someone who was part of this team to help kind of map out the eclipse over the cross of, uh, as it went across the country. Uh, he was like that, that euphoria, that excitement of everyone just finally being able to see what's happening here. Um, so yeah, this is what we, you know, you ultimately get to see with an eclipse here. Um, and I'm, I'm pausing here for questions. I know I, I spoke a lot about kind of that stuff. I have more to say when it comes to like that stuff, stuff about like COVID coverage and, and health disparities. But I wanted to give you all a quick moment. If you have any kind of questions about the science that I covered here, feel free to ask. We can go back to the presentation. Um, yeah, go I, ahead, Woody. I, I... Yeah, thank you for, for your very uh, exciting descriptions of the projects that you've worked on. My questions uh, for you, my question for you would be, uh, why those the, those stories, um, especially from from someone like me who doesn't have intimate um, knowledge of the you know the places you worked at or the the journalism mm -hmm. um, norms in general? Uh, could you could you uh, shed some light on why? the those particular stories was it out of personal interest mm -hmm. or some sure. other factor 
Woody, was that a was that a solar eclipse pun there? Share, shed some light. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it, it wasn't intended. <laughs> okay, maybe you have the dad joke gene, and you just didn't even realize it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so I'm fortunate, or I was particularly fortunate in that a lot of my stories I could pitch myself. And I'm a very curious person. I want to know how the world works. I want to know how people work. I want to know how the people who study how people work, how they work. So I was very fortunate in that I got to ask all of these questions. Um, I, find, I found a good number of these stories. Sometimes as a journalist, you get access to um, stories, studies that are coming out with a couple of days notice before they appear in a journal. This is something known as the embargo system, right? So sometimes I would see a study coming out beforehand. I'll slack my editor or in those days, you know, walk up to him and be like, yo, Michael, this is like super cool. Can I write about it? And, you know, as my time went on, you know, my pitches could be a little more informal like that. And he'd be like, yeah, sure, Nick, go ahead. Um, for the eclipse, though, the eclipse, I learned about it from an eclipse chaser. I had been lucky enough to be like on the eclipse beat for a while in terms of, um, I was kind of on the backyard astronomy beat. So like when, when meteor showers would happen or when you got the opportunity to see like a lunar eclipse or to see multiple like planets in the sky, I'd been covering that for a couple of years. And one of the people who I spoke to was like, yo, like lunar eclipses are cool and whatnot, but in a couple of years, there's gonna be this total solar eclipse and it's going to the, it's coming to the US and it's gonna be wild. And I was like, oh yeah, how wild? He's like, wild so i'm like okay cool let me learn about it um so i had the foresight to kind of pitch it to my editors a bit early that hey we should really be keeping eyes on this and the times actually did like a special section on it um but the thing about the eclipse is that if you haven't experienced one and in the us we didn't have one that went coast to coast for at least 100 years it's hard to tell people how cool it is. They all have memories of when they were kids wearing the eclipse glasses and then looking to the sky and seeing something. And it's not as compelling as actually being there. So part of it was a, a little bit of a tough sell to some of my, my um, you know, higher up people. Cause you know, during that time, everyone was all Trump, Trump, Trump. That was all the coverage I was laying. And my editor worked very valiantly to rally up a bunch of reporters to, to national reporters to cover the eclipse when it happened. Um, um, but yeah, that definitely took some convincing. And because people didn't realize like how big of a deal it was going to be. And I mean, it, there are people on this call who have seen it, right? So it really had a big input. So if there's anything you take away from my chat here, it's that in 2024, the eclipse is coming back to the US. You want to be on the line of totality. Book your hotel now. Um, it's actually coming going to come back to Carbondale, Illinois. So Carbondale was literally, they had both. They had, they were like an X on the map and they had um, line of greatest duration, but they were experienced 2017 eclipse and 2024 eclipse. Like you don't get a bonanza like that. And I'm telling you like eclipse chasers, they're like, they like, like you get eclipse groupies is how people were telling me. Like it's, it's just a huge phenomenon. So I think the one in 2024 is going to be big, but to answer your question, sometimes I'm given the leeway to just follow my curiosity. A source will give me a tip, be like, Hey, you should keep your eyes peeled for this. Like thing happening in the sky in two years. And I was like, okay, for sure. And yeah, that's how I got to really place and position myself to be uh, one of our like lead reporters on the eclipse beat. Um, we had a whole lot of people come in, like I, like running up to the date people, like a lot of editors were like, oh crap, this will be a big deal. So they brought in like the whole cavalry to cover it. 
Um, big, like big shout out to my editor, uh, Michael over there, who is really able to, you know, rally people together to cover it. But yeah, that's how I get it. Um, any other questions? I saw a couple more faces pop off and then just quickly pop off. Um, but any other quick questions about the kind of sciencey portion or the um, reporting on astronomy and, and, and the dead world? How do you get your beat? Is it something that they assign to you, depending on the, the uh, news outlet? Depends on the news outlet. Depends. Sometimes you'll apply to a job that has a specific beat in mind. Like at STAT, um, we hired not that long ago a cancer reporter, and that's a very specific beat. A good friend of mine named Angus who covers cancer. So sometimes you come in through a specific beat that they bring you in. Sometimes you'll be at a place like the Times where um, you there are certain areas that you might find they have a gap in their coverage so you kind of better position yourself to write about those things um writing about like dinosaurs and such a lot of early career science journalists write about anyway so i really was able to kind of make that a bit of my own beat while i was there um and sometimes your editor is just like hey we need someone to cover this you want to do it or like hey we need someone to cover this you're doing it <laughs> so it really depends um, i totally recommend that people like kind of follow their curiosity when they're looking at these things Helena, do you have any questions as you pop back on? Not to put you on the spot. Yeah, but. no, it's okay. Put me on the spot. That's fine. <laughs> You're on the spot, girl. You're on the spot. <laughs> I was, I was thinking, I was wondering how, um, what, what thoughts do you have about navigating between health and science reporting? I mean, there are some people who build whole careers just doing one or the other, um, and, and a specific beat within one or the other. What? Um, tell me about toggling between those and 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 what that's been like for you. Well, Helena, I'm actually going to use that as a segue to the second part of my presentation because that's about my kind of career now as a as a more along the lines of as a health reporter. So I'm going to take back the screen if you all are cool with that, if you don't mind um, going over here. Yeah, so I found myself very much in this position. Um, most of my coverage up until 2020 has been dinosaurs, has been mummies, has been has been space, has been a lot of like cool stuff, ancient human origins. Um, don't even get me started on Neanderthals. I love Neanderthals. Um, but, you know, the events of 2020, this pandemic, uh, watching that at the time I was freelancing for the time, so still writing for them, but I was based in Palo Alto, as I had mentioned at the start of this conversation. Just watching the biggest story of my kind of career happening and realizing that I was more or less kind of on the sidelines there. Um, the Times mobilized their entire their entire newsroom to cover this from all the different angles. It was a little tougher for me freelancing to kind of come in and my editors and such still wanted non-COVID stories. So I was still pitching non-COVID stories um, because people wanted a break. Uh, people, of course, you know, the thing we were learning about this pandemic, of course, is that no one really knows when it'll end. And especially during those early days, you know, oh, it'll be done by Easter. Yeah, that sure happened. Um, <laughs> but you know, we were providing other stories, you know, to kind of get people's minds off of it. Um, so I was continuing on with my beat and such, but I got very fortunate and very, and I'm very privileged to have been in a position where, um, you know, an editor over at STAT had reached out to me and said, hey, like, there's this fellowship opportunity called the Knight Wallace Fellowship. We're looking to put forth a candidate for it. Uh, would you be interested in applying? So I applied. I was like, yeah, sure. This was over at STAT. I applied and we got it. Um, you know, <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, sure. I, I could put forth an, an application. Once, once a due date. And he's like, oh, you, 
it's in two days. So I was up all day, all night working on an application because this is something I had wanted to cover, especially after seeing, you know, the murder of George Floyd and seeing, you know, this racial reckoning in our company and in, in our country finally boil over and realizing myself, especially as a young black journalist, uh, realizing the stories I really want to tell are at those intersections of health and race or stories of health um, uh, health disparities. It's, it's honestly part of what really got me interested in, in journalism in the first place. Um, and then I kind of made my dino detour, if you will. But I'm doing some of the work right now that I am so passionate about that really aligns with my being a journalist, my being uh, someone interested in the health and medical field, but also just my being as, as, as a black man in, in, in America. Um, so one of the first stories, the first story I wrote for STAT was about these two um, black university professors at HBCUs, uh, Dillard and Xavier, both in New Orleans, um, signing up to take a COVID vaccine, uh, to take the COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials. So they, you know, they got that all good. And then they reached out to their communities. They sent out a note saying, hey, we just did this. We think this is very important for black folk to, to sign up and be a part of these clinical trials to make sure we're represented for when this vaccine comes out. We suggest that you should do it as well. And they were, inundated right after they did that they were inundated with just so much uh backlash if you will you had folks saying like like our children are not lab rats for drug companies um other people were saying like i can't believe an hbcu would do this to their own people other people saying tuskegee tuskegee me and mine won't be first in line and what you're seeing is 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 this 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 mistrust between the black community and 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 healthcare and 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 medicine and doctors and medical establishment and it comes from a long history of being you know mistreated not listened to but it also comes from our lived experiences, our present day, you know, you might have loved ones who go to the doctor and, you know, they seem just fine. And then they, and then, you know, they die suddenly, or, you know, you go to a doctor and you feel like they're not listening to you or they're gaslighting you. And I've throughout my bit of my beat right now, I cover health equity. I'm hearing these stories from folk, from, from, from patients. And, you know, they very much reflect things that either I have also experienced or that my family members have experienced. So it's, 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 it's very interesting in that sense, but it's also like, wow, there's so much work that needs to be done in terms of building that 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 trust or or you know reestablishing it, if you will. Um, so yeah, I wrote that story, and it's so funny because now here we are in 2022. You would think to yourself, like, like, why wouldn't you want to take the vaccine? Why wouldn't you want to take the vaccine early? Like, this seems like a great opportunity. But during those early days of the clinical trial happening and the vaccine development and everything, I mean, there was just so much misinformation, so much fear, so much trepidation. Um, as, as, as one person had said to me, Miles, those horror stories going back to like, you know, medical um, racism and instances of that that, that, that so many black people have either experienced, lived with or heard stories about. Those horror stories are something that is part of our history as African-Americans. So we'd be completely naive to ignore precedents that have been set. So this was just, my introduction to this beat, but it was just such an impactful story. Um, I've also had the opportunity to to cover, um, you know, the vaccine clinical trial, uh, the vaccine rollout, right? And in this case, I was speaking to people who were just frustrated, trying desperately to get their loved ones, 
you know, appointments for the vaccines and how so many of them would spend hours on the website. Maybe you've had this experience yourself during those early days trying to get a, an appointment for a loved one, you know, refreshing the website, filling out all the information just for it to all crash right as you put it in. So I spoke with doctors about, you know, I spoke with a doctor who was trying to find a vaccine for her mom, uh, who was like 70 or so, and other people who, who, who also went through that, that those trials, those tribulations. Um, now going into something a bit more personal, writing a bit about colonoscopies. Um, so I wrote a story in this particular case, looking at this kind of frustration, if you will, between doctors and nurse practitioners. Um, there's this whole thing known as scope creep where some doctors feel as if nurse practitioners are kind of encroaching on their, 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 their territory when it comes to the kind of procedures you're doing. So that's kind of the, back, the background for this. But in this particular story I wrote called A Doctor Trained Nurse Practitioners to Do Colonoscopies, uh, critics say his research exploited Black patients. In this particular case, it was looking at Johns Hopkins and how they had been doing um, some colonoscopies um, done by nurse practitioners. So that's not the standard of care in the U.S. The standard of care is that a gastroenterologist does it. And by standard of care, of care I mean, like, this is like, this is how it's supposed to be done. This is like how it's done. In this case, um, even though the Johns Hopkins medical system is not predominantly white um, in this area, um, what they found is that of the people who were given colonoscopies by nurse practitioners, something like 70% of them were black, right? So it was this disparity in terms of who gets this quote unquote experimental um, 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 you know, colonoscopy. And I know it might sound like a bit off because it's just a different person doing it, but Normally, the way you would do this is through a random, you know, a randomized clinical trial where some patients coming in, you know, randomly would get nurse practitioners, some of them would get doctors, you compare, you compare them together. And if you were to do that, your chances of ending up with like 70% of them being black probably wouldn't have happened. So there was a lot of outrage over this, like, were they targeting black folk in this case? Did the black folk know that this isn't normally how a colonoscopy is done? Did they know that this isn't, um, um, this isn't, uh, standard? Did they have other options? Uh, did they have informed like consent for this? I mean, you go through the prep for a colonoscopy just to get there, get ready, and then realize, wait, a doctor's not doing this? Oh, no, I don't want to go through this prep. I mean, I don't want to do this, but, you know, the prep is so, it can be grueling. It can be fine, but it can also be grueling. So we'll get into a little more about that, but it was just this whole idea of like, like, this is happening like kind of right before our eyes, an instance of honestly, what some of my sources called like medical racism. Um, I wrote a story, my most impactful story, I felt like that I've done so far at STAT, um, looking at uh, Chadwick Boseman and his tragic death to colorectal cancer. Um, so I remember scrolling through my phone right before my fellowship started and seeing someone post on Twitter, like, dang, little black boys are just losing all their heroes, aren't they? And I was like, what, huh? what's going on? And then I scrolled and I saw CNN announced that Chadwick Boseman had died, you know, from colorectal cancer. And this is personal for me because my mom had colorectal cancer. Um, she was diagnosed when she was 34. Luckily, they found it early through a colonoscopy and they were able to save her life. But that put me at a higher risk of developing it myself. I knew this was part of my family history. I knew this is something I should have been more proactive about but I wasn't. And I, when I saw that Chadwick Boseman died from this, I was like, 
the Black Panther, like this got the Black Panther, this got, you know, T'Challa, uh, he's way more fit than I am. I really need to get this checked out myself. Like I really, I really do. So I ended up getting my own colonoscopy, which I'll dive into in a moment. But I knew this was a story I wanted to continue looking into. I wanted to investigate. I wanted to look at colorectal cancer and I was speaking to a, an, an expert about this uh, for a different story about the, you know, looking at the rise of colorectal cancer in, in younger folks and how this is like on the rise. It's not just an old person's disease anymore. Um, younger folks are getting it as well. And he had told me that he mapped out all of these um, hot spots across the U.S. where young folk are dying from this, especially young men. Um, and he, we dived into a bit about um, some of the stigmas that young black men face when it comes to getting checked and such. I wrote a story about a person named Omar Carter, who is the husband of uh, Jahan Carter, who you see here. Um, he had very similar, very much similar parallels to, 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 to um, Chadwick Boseman. They actually both lived in one of these hot spots that this doctor had, had shown up. He had colorectal cancer. Um, you know, he had bleeding from his, from his anus. Um, from his rectum as well in terms of like what he was going through but he didn't act on it and one thing i'm learning when i'm speaking to gastroenterologists is that using words like anus rectum blood are important because people need to know how serious this is um but they we also need to destigmatize it unfortunately he passed from it um over there he he seemed like such a such an important figure in his community. He was a youth basketball coach, and he was really much. He was very much a T'Challa of his neighborhood, if you will. He was kind of like a like a like a Black Panther in that everyone like they looked up to him. Um, and the story was just looking at his life, his final moments, comparing them a bit to Chadwick Boseman, but also using it as an opportunity to talk about this disease. Um, I got my own colonoscopy um, as a result of knowing that this was part of my family history. And I'll, I'll provide a link to it. We don't have time to watch it, so I'm gonna spare you all the details. <laughs> but um, basically, I went through with it as well. And we ended up you know, videotaping it um, to kind of show, really, I did it to really show uh, other young folk, but especially young black men like myself, that this is a disease that we need to be serious about, that we should not let stigma um, 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 you know, prevent us from, from, from getting checked. Um, so I found this to be a very powerful story to tell and the, the, the feedback I got from it was very heartening, if you will. It just made me feel like I'm doing the kind of journalism I'm in, that I want to do um, that's impacting communities that I want to impact and will hopefully elicit the type of change that, 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 that I wanna see in the world. Um, and now my current project at the, my current project at the time at uh, STAT, hold on. Um, let me just go to the end of this is Color Code. This is a podcast I'm doing on health equity, on racism in medicine um, that you all should listen to because it's not that bad. <laughs> uh, comes out every other week. And we look at issues of mistrust. We look at issues of, of, of um, historical issues of medical racism. We look at issues of, um, problems in AI, um, we look at the, the Black um, maternal mortality crisis we're going through right now. And my goal with this podcast is to bring these experts and bring these patients together so that we can further contribute to this conversation on health equity in our country in, in, in hopes of improving it, but in also in hopes of leading us towards a more anti-racist uh, um, form of medical care in the U.S. 
Um, so yeah, that's that's a bit of my presentation. I know I went a little long there, but if you have questions, feel free to ask them and I can stay a little longer as well. But thank you all so much for just listening. Um, and I'll, I'll be sure to send some links if you all want to, you know, watch my colonoscopy or anything. I, I, I promise it's, it's, it's tasteful. I actually ended up on Good Morning America, and they, so they showed it to millions of folks. So that's, that's my fun fact. A lot of people have seen my insides. But um, if, if you walk away with anything from this, I hope you walk away with thinking that, you know, issues of race and medicine are important, and we need to continue to to, 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 to raise the alarm on these issues and, and, and the change that needs to be done. That's one. And then two, 2024, y'all, you need to be in that line of totality for the eclipse. I'm telling you, it'll be worth it. And you'll be like, oh, that guy, that science reporter told me about it a couple of years ago. And he's the reason I'm here now. And it was all worth it. So yeah, thank you so much for my presentation. It was really fun speaking with y'all. And if you have questions, feel free to ask. Thank you so much. That was incredible. And what a wide range of work you've done. My gosh. Um, <laughs> I can't believe you're 31. Um, does anyone have any questions they would like to ask? I mean, if you don't, I'm just going to show the colonoscopy videos. So you should all ask. <laughs> I have a couple. I have a couple. Um, let's see. Do you, so what are some kinds of ways that science journalists can, can help make sure diversity and like equity are something that's getting brought up and like included yeah. in articles. Do you have any that's a thoughts very, on that? That's a very good question, Victoria. And something I'm particularly like passionate about and that I try to do in my articles, making sure I'm getting like a diverse array of, of, of sources to kind of chime in um, a couple of ways um, in terms of like concrete ways. When you're writing a story, uh, you know, there's a long author list. Oftentimes women are underrepresented in, in our stories, um, in science, and when it comes to like getting the credit for things, I'm sure there are women authors on the paper there. You can quote people, reach out, make sure you're listening and you're hearing their voices. So I'm a big advocate for making sure you reach out to folks on the paper, um, not just the lead author or the senior author, definitely speak with them, but they're not the only people who did the work. I'm huge on when it comes to like diversity. Um, I'm also really big on the diversity of who I quote on like that scientific hierarchy. So I'm, I'm speaking to grad students all the time. I'm like, yeah, I know y'all did the work. I know your PI is just kind of like there overseeing it all. I know you're, so I always speak with the grad students. I'll ask like who, like who really kind of did this? Oftentimes in the paper, they'll have like, you know, acknowledgements about like who did what. So that helps. Um, so I'm always speaking to grad students and oftentimes they'll give you better quotes because they're just like, yo, this is so cool. Like I never got to talk, speak with someone about my research. Like I'm so happy you're interviewing me. So they're, they're a little more like unfiltered when it comes to like the cool quotes that they give. Um, I also ask researchers like who did a big, like who had a big contribution who's not on the paper, not credited. And sometimes that's when you learn about, um, you know, citizen scientists or you'll learn about like, like, technicians who are doing like a lot of the work like I do a lot of like bone I, I used to write a lot about bones so the people who actually like scraped the bones and such I'll speak with them so I definitely look for diversity in that standpoint as well but I'm also looking for diversity in terms of like ethnic background or racial background of the people you know who are in that field so when I'm looking for people I definitely keep that front of mind when I'm looking for outside sources experts who could comment on papers um I also, another area to bring up as someone who covers a lot of archaeology or who had covered a lot of archaeology, one area that I think we can really jump on as science journalists is when you're reporting on a story about, 
you know, a discovery made in like South Africa or something, like try your best to quote local scientists, local archaeologists who were part of the team doing this work, not just, um, you know, the scientists from like, you know, Harvard or like, uh, like Cambridge or whomever who might be like the lead person who, 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 who kind of like went in there to do the work. Um, there are a lot of really fantastic local scientists who have probably been there even longer doing this work too. So ask about them speak to them, quote them. I, I, I try my best or I have tried my best to make sure that I'm doing that as well. But I'm also always looking for stories that impact um, 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 you know, diverse communities. I have a particular focus on black communities. It's something that's impo particularly important to me and something that I know a lot about as being a black guy. Um, so yeah, I, when it comes to like story selection, I definitely look for those as well because those are stories where I feel I can definitely make the big make a big impact. Um, so yeah, I hope that kind of addresses your questions. Any any other kind of questions, whether they be dinosaur related or not a question, but a comment just on that. Um, one of my first journalism internships, like also a health and science journals based in New York, but one of my first. Um, my first internship, my supervisor was like, don't just talk to doctors, talk to nurses too. You know, think about who else in the industry you could be talking to who may not be, who may not have the most agency sometimes and then maybe a little harder, you have to do a little more source work. But um, there are voices, like she started a program, I think at George Washington University to help nurses start to communicate with us more, um, with journalists more. And so anyway. Just want to add oh, that's that. Fantastic. That's great. No, that's good to hear. Um, and yeah, I mean, especially during COVID times, I, I don't think I've done enough of those stories myself, but the stories that I find so interesting are the ones who are speaking to like custodial staff at hospitals or speaking to like technicians, whether it be um, um, like, like, like thoracic, like, like, like technicians, like some of the people who, who aren't necessarily the doctors, but are seeing these patients every, every day or the people who are like in the labs, literally test, like, checking the COVID, like the PCR test, like literally doing those tests. Like there have been some people who have written about those, those, those folks and they're like the kind of unsung heroes in this case, but like oh, their stories, they're, what they're doing is so vital, so important. So yeah, you need to reach out to, reach out to, to, to as many people as you can to really tell the, 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 the these, hol these stories holistically, if you will. So I'm happy you brought that up. We have time for one more question if anyone wants to chime in. Uh, if not, I was going to ask on behalf of the students, do you have any tips for us? We're all like grad students, med students, um, yeah. if trying to transition to more science writing. So my first thing would be, I'm going to post this in the chat, or actually I can't chat with you all, but no worries. There's this fellowship known as the Mass Media Fellowship, which if you haven't heard about and you're interested in science communication, definitely put it on your radar. Um, it typically is a fellowship that takes PhDs and puts them into um, journalistic outlets for the summer. And they get to, they're full-time like they're, they're reporters, they're doing their writing stories. And oftentimes they come with a scientific background that these news outlets don't have, which allows them to really do, yes, perfect. Thank you for, for posting that. Allows them to do really impactful work, um, you know, ending up on like front pages of stories or writing or covering like, like, like a big discovery because sometimes they might be the only science reporter on staff. I know here at STAT, we're actually taking two mass media fellows uh, this upcoming summer. And we take one every summer. So be sure to like, if you're looking at that, that's a great outlet. A lot of journalists get their start through that outlet. Um, but you don't have to just rely on the mass media fellowship. 
the basic, the low hanging fruit or your school newspaper, if your school has one, you know, like this one, yeah, <laughs> what you have here, any kind of science outlets is great. Um, your alumni paper, or if your school has like a med school, they'll have like an alumni magazine as well. Like reach out to the editor and say, hey, can I write for you? Can I intern for you? That's how I kind of got my start. Um, I wrote for my, my college's alumni paper and that gets you your first published clips. Uh, and you get to work with an, an editor whose job it is to, you know, do, to be an editor, not just like someone who's a student, though you learn so much by being on a student publication like this one. Um, you just learn, you're just kind of given that free reign to, to, to follow your curiosity. So I highly recommend, you know, those of you all who are here, you're already on the right track if this is an area you want to go. Um, but also feel free to reach out to me. Feel free to reach out to journalists who use work you admire going forward. Um, my I'm going to drop my email address right here. Uh, be on Twitter. Twitter is super helpful for finding folks, but also just like being part of that conversation. So that's a great, great area too to just learn more about science communication. And there are great resources like the Open Notebook. Um, look that up. Um, they've got some great insight as well. And there's also this thing called NPR SciCommerce. Um, uh, sorry, that should be an NPR. Um, NPR SciCommerce run by uh, Joe Palka and Burley. Um, her last name is escaping me right now, but they um, bring in people who are very much like yourselves. It's like a, a Slack group, a community to learn more about being a science communicator. communicator. Um, but yeah, these are some areas. You can also just like pitch a story to like your local outlet or something, see what's happening. Um, you know, journalism is a tough career. I'm going to be honest. Um, the thing that's lucky for scientists, PhDs who are going into it is that you know, you're already underpaid, so you're, you're you're familiar with not being, you know, not not going that lucrative route, uh, which is definitely true with journalism. But where science journalism differs from being a, a a scientist or someone at the bench is that, you know, you are very much given that free reign to pursue your curiosity. You can speak to, like some of the top scientists in the country, people who helped develop the vaccine or people who have like, you know, moons or exoplanets named after them. Like you can really do anything that you're, you, you, you kind of want to do within reason, but I, that's what really does it for me. I, I'm a curious person. I like being able to ask these questions. So if you're someone who likes asking questions and getting paid to ask questions, um, but you also want to make a difference, Journalism, science journalism is definitely one route and an important route to do that. Um, it's a tough route, but it can be so rewarding. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't also add in writing for kids is super rewarding as well because <laughs> they're, they're the next generation. They have the most curious minds as well. So if you get those opportunities, definitely go for them. They, the payoff is, is, is incalculable. Uh, but yeah, thank you all so much for, you know, giving me the opportunity to just share and kind of geek out and nerd out with you all. It was, it was a lot of fun and follow up. Feel free to follow up. Everyone. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, thank you all. Have a Take great care. day, everyone. Stay safe. This has been the Synapse Podcast recorded in beautiful San Francisco, California. Be sure to tune in again for future discussions with scientists, healthcare providers, educators, writers, and more. Thanks for listening.